So I'm still trying to shake that May the 4th thing. Um, I mean, did you guys like me lose a bucket load of money on the Derby, the Kentucky Derby? I mean, what a blowout. Uh, maximum security, best horse in the country, was supposed to win easily. Wins, I thought. Thought the money was in my pocket. And, and they give it to Country House, a 65 to 1. I don't really gamble. <laughs> a 65 to 1 shot. Talk about an unexpected experience. In, in 145 years of the Kentucky Derby, this is the first time the horse that won was ever disqualified and the horse behind it won. So... Finishing unexpectedly, uh, last night, for you that are boxing fans, uh, Anthony Joshua had a very unexpected finish by uh, Luis Ruiz, who becomes the first Mexican-American heavyweight champion uh, ever in history as he overthrew, uh, in a big upset, Anthony Joshua. We're going to talk about Moses once again and uh, the people of Israel as we close out today. But we're really talking about our journey toward destiny. And we've said from the very beginning that the scripture teaches that God has a purpose for each and every human being. And it it just kills me that most people walk around with no clue about what their purpose is. But the scripture teaches very clearly my purpose, your purpose, I am to be in a developmental journey throughout my life. I am supposed to be growing. My character has this tremendous potential to grow. My character development is more important than how much money I make, how many accolades, how many achievements, how popular I am, how much power I sway. None of that matters compared to my character development. And the scripture says that I am supposed to be ever growing more to be like my creator, Christ. It says that once I return to him in trust and become his follower, then his spirit can start to really operate in me and help me to develop so that I can become who I was meant to become and do what I was meant to do. And that means that I become a Christ-like version of myself. That is God's purpose for your life. You don't ever have to wonder what it is. That is God's purpose for each and every life in here. When we don't know that or when we don't follow it, inevitably we hit frustration, confusion, and we waste, frankly, we waste this gift of life. So that's what the series has been about. We said that there are experiences that we see in the life of Moses and the Israelites that are very similar to the kinds of experiences, developmental experiences that God takes us through. So we've been looking at them, and now we come down to the finish. So go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 20, and that'll be page 175. I'm, I'm hearing a little, little echo. I'm not sure what's going on back there, but it's, it's okay. I mean, if it sounds all right out there, but it's just, I'll get used to it. Numbers chapter 20. And before we start here, let, let, me, let me backtrack just a little bit. Last week, we looked at defining moments, and we saw that After just 15 months of the Israelites leaving Egyptian bondage, Moses had led them to the very border of the Promised Land. They come right to the border of uh, the wilderness of Zin and Kadesh Barnea. They're ready to cross over and take the Promised Land. God had kept telling them, this is your land. I've waited 400 years on the inhabitants of the land to clean up their act. They're not, so now I'm giving it to you guys. I'm judging them, pushing them out. You're going to be the vehicle to do it. And they get there to the very border of the promised land. They check the land out and they say, it's wonderful, just like God said, except for one thing. There's these fortifications 
and there are these giants in the land. We saw the, the Nephilim there, and they, and they said, we, we have no chance against these people. They're, they're not leaving. They're not going to give up their houses. We can't win in a fight with these individuals. And so you remember, they rebelled against Moses, and they rebelled against God. And it was only Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb that said, no, 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 no. If we trust God, we can certainly do this. We, we, can, we can go in and take it. The rest of the people say no. They talk about stoning Moses. And so then God says, all right, they'll be kept safe for the next 38 and a half years, total 40 years, but they will not, this generation will not enter the promised land. So that's, that's kind of where we left off. They were now, now destined to wander in circles, essentially, in the wilderness instead of enter the land of promise where they were going to become fully identified with God and become his witness to the world and so forth. And when you come to this portion of Scripture here in Numbers chapter 20, here's what's easy to miss. 38 and a half years have gone by. This is now the 40th year since they left Egypt. Moses has been leading them for 40 years. He's 120 years old now. His brother Aaron's 123 they are once again right back to the border of promised land in the wilderness of Zin and the borderline of Kadesh Barnea. The next generation, the generation that God said will go into the promised land, the generation that the earlier ones said, oh, they'll be slaughtered if we even try this. Now they're ready to go. And Moses is still there, man. He's still full of vigor, ready to lead them in. Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Aaron as well. So when you come to this portion of Scripture, mind you, from last week, where we left off, 38 and a half years have gone by, and now it's been about a total 40 years since they left Egypt. Okay, now let's pick up reading. I had a little thing in my throat. Let me, let me just drink. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the entire community of Israel entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month. Now, this is the first month of the 40th year. And the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam, that's Moses' sister, died and was buried there. And there was no, what does it say? Water. We've seen this problem before. There was no water for the community, so they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. The people contended with Moses, saying, If only we had died when our brothers died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the Lord's community into this wilderness, so that we and our cattle should die here? Why have you brought us up from Egypt only to bring us to this dreadful place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting. This was the tabernacle. They threw themselves down with their faces to the ground, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the community, you and Aaron, your brother, and then... What does it say? Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. Keep that in mind. Speak to the rock before their eyes. It will pour forth water, and you will bring water out of the rock for them. So you will give the community and their beasts water to drink. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord, just as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the community together in front of the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock, how many times? Twice with his staff, and the water came out abundantly. So the community drank and their beasts drank. Everything's cool so far, right? 
They needed water. They got their water. God brings it forth supernaturally. Verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Because you did not trust me, what is the word? Enough to show me as holy before the Israelites. Therefore, you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. And I'll just stop there. Let it sink in. Moses, who didn't want the job in the first place, has given 40 years of his life to a people that, frankly, didn't ever seem to appreciate any of his efforts whatsoever. They criticized him constantly, threatened him numerous times. It's now the 40th year. He has his chance to now go into the promised land. He was deprived of his chance 38 and a half years earlier because of the lack of trust on the part of the people. He's waited. He's endured. He's kept them alive. God has supernaturally fed them with manna. He's given them water. And they're right back at the border of the promised land. And now God says to Moses, you're not going. You're not going. You failed me. You didn't trust me enough. What was the issue? Well, remember God said, speak to the rock. Remember I had you pause there and emphasize that? Speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He takes his staff and he bangs it. How many times? Some of you remember? Bangs it twice. Not only that, his language. You bunch of rebels. What are we, meaning by we, meaning himself and Aaron, what do we have to do? Give you rock from this water? Did Moses and Aaron have any power to produce rock from a water? No. Or a water from a rock, I should say. <laughs> that'd be even harder, wouldn't it? That'd be, that'd be quite a miracle. <laughs> Drink this and it's a big rock right in your stomach. <laughs> so we see something went awry, but you know, you're like, come on. For 40 years, the man's been faithful. For 40 years, he has taken grief from these people. So he finally got fed up, and he blows his stack a little bit, and he doesn't speak to the rock. Please, he hits it with his staff. What is the big deal? But the big deal was that God says, you're not going into the promised land. So what what does this mean to you and me? Does this mean that that you or I could faithfully follow Jesus all of our life, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 100 years, whatever it is, but then somewhere toward the end of our life make a terrible miscue of some sort, become very unfaithful in something that God considers important, and we're maybe not even aware of how important it is, and God finally banishes us from entering into his eternal kingdom? Is, is, is that what this passage is teaching? If it is... That makes me a little bit nervous. I mean, it's, it's a little bit scary to think that after this man had been faithful to God for 40 years, one, what looks to me, probably to you, like a minute slip-up, cost him dearly. So what, what was going on here? He finishes very unexpectedly. It's not the way we wanted the story to finish. We want the story to finish that he finally leads him into the promised land and, you know, sees a great victory and all of his efforts are you know, rewarded by that, and and yet that's not, that's not the way this thing ends. He finishes as a failure. Do you call the man a failure? I mean, God says you're not going in. You're not leading him in. You're disqualified from it. You failed. You failed me. You didn't trust me enough. Is he, is he a failure? Let's look at this whole subject of failure for a minute. 
In his book, Break Open the Sky, Steve Bauman writes, despite our near-phobic fear of failure, the facts suggest that it's actually a common, almost universal experience. We kind of know that, but we that live in the West, particularly we Americans, we are so success-oriented, we, we think it's even dangerous to think of failure. You know, we try to keep positive, positive, positive. Listen to this next quote. The increase of suicides, alcoholics, and even some form of nervous breakdowns is evidence that many people are training for what? Success, that's all we hear in America. When they should be training for what? That doesn't even sound American, does it? Train for failure. Failure is far more common than success. Poverty is more prevalent than wealth and disappointment more normal, more normal than arrival. That's just hard, cold reality. Listen to this next one. Failure, failures, excuse me, take on a life of their own because the brain remembers incomplete tasks or failures longer than any success or completed activity. It's the it's technically referred to as the Zagarnik effect. Just got to ask you. I asked this in the first verse. How many of you have ever had some kind of a failure and it was significant enough that you did that thing that we do, man? You, you play it over and over and over and over and you, you put it aside for a while, but then you're sitting there one night and that thing comes back to you. It's maybe a month later, two years later, and you're playing that thing again. How many have done that before? It's amazing. And, and yet we have lots of successes and we just forget about them. We just forget them. And evidently they're finding now it's because of the way our, our brain is wired. When we fail at something, the brain registers jobs not finished. It's not complete yet. And so we want to go back and we want to we do over. Moses looks like a failure. He looks initially pretty broken. He looks like the kind of guy you don't want to be. You don't want to be Moses. You don't want to hear from God. You're not entering the promised land. But is that accurate? Is, is, is that an accurate picture of what's taking place here? Listen to this passage from the New Testament. This is written by the Apostle Paul. The Spirit of God used him to write 13 books in the New Testament. When he wrote this, he had been a follower of Jesus for 27 years he would follow Jesus for 32 years before Nero cut off his head because he refused to stop telling people about Jesus. So 27 years into following Jesus, here, listen to his words. He says, not that I have already obtained it. What's the it, Paul? This goal of being, you tell me, Christ-like. Well, that's what we've said all along, journey to destiny. The destiny is to become a Christ-like version of myself, yourself. The goal of being Christ-like or have already been made perfect. But I actively press on so that I may take hold of that perfection for which Christ Jesus took hold of me and made me his own. He says, I haven't achieved it in 27 years, but I'm still pressing on. That word pressing on there is an interesting Greek word, dioko. It is the word used for persecution. It's intense. It means I am, I am really striving after this goal to become like Christ. It goes on. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He doesn't think about failures or successes in the past. He just keeps moving toward the goal to become the Christ-like version of himself. It goes on. I press on. There's that word dioko again. 
very intense word. I press on toward the goal to win the heavenly prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All of us who are, what does it say? Mature, which means pursuing spiritual perfection. Mature followers of Christ are pursuing Christ-like character because they know that's God's purpose and intention for this life. It's meant to be a developmental journey. Should have this attitude. So Paul says, I've been pushing for it for 27 years. I've been chasing it down, but I I don't have it yet. Now, this was the Apostle Paul. This was not just me or you. This was the guy that the Spirit of God used to write, you know, 13 books in the New Testament. This was an individual who was inspired. His words are written in the New Testament today. God brought forth miracles through Paul, but he's saying, no, I, I I haven't made it after 27 years, but I am not giving up, he said. Love this quote from Theodore Roosevelt. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by what? Failure. Than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. In other words, they don't try for much. They don't risk much. They don't pursue much. They don't fail much. They don't get disappointed much. So they live in stabilized mediocrity. But I'm telling you, you have a spiritual DNA written inside of you And it's not made for that kind of existence. And the sheer boredom of it usually results in you or I doing stupid things with our life, trying to bring some some kind of energy, some kind of enthusiasm into our life in some illicit fashion because we're not gaining the enthusiasm by the means that we were intended to, which is pursuing Christ-like character. I can't change a lot of things. You may not believe this, but I cannot. I cannot make myself any taller. That's a fact. Can't make myself any better looking. You know, I could go on and on and on. But one thing I can do, like Paul, man, every day of my life, I can continue to grow to become more like Christ, which is, in fact, to become more beautiful. And so can you. And that's the way human beings were meant to live. We're not meant to live to accumulate things, to achieve things, to get accolades, to gain fame, to immerse ourselves in senseless pleasures that quickly, quickly lose their impact. I'm not saying that you can't enjoy yourself along the way, but I'm saying the greatest joy, the secret to it, is when I actually align my will with God's will, which is to become somebody, and that somebody is a Christ-like version of myself, and from that, I end up doing things that I wouldn't normally do, and those things that I do, they serve, they bless, they build people's lives, and sometimes they echo right into eternity. And that is ironically the secret to the happiest possible life that a human can have. But it seems counterintuitive because society doesn't teach us or urge those kinds of things on us. Poor Moses. Poor Moses, man. 40 years of being faithful. 40 years of taking grief from the Israelites. And he gets knocked out at the end. He doesn't make it to the finish line. Let's look at four reasons why that happened to Moses. Finishing unexpectedly because of, first of all, miscalculating personal progress. I I think because Moses had been faithful to God for so long, for 40 years, 
that I think what probably happened to him is what tends to happen to a lot of us that have been following Christ for a long time. You would think that we would get more vigilant, more wise, more careful, you know, more focused, but the truth of the matter is the temptation, the tendency is the longer that we follow Christ, the looser we get, the more self-confident we get instead of being confident in Christ. Many people in Scripture, you find, they, they don't falter in the earlier stages of their journey in following God. They falter in the latter stages. We get too comfortable. We get too self-confident. I, I want to suggest to you, I think Moses' guard was down. And, and I think this was part of what happened to him. Don't let yours. I must accept this. I need to be vigilant over my own soul until my last breath. That's not stressful. That's just being realistic. You're vigilant when you drive your car, Right? You, you, you know, you're looking around. You're pretending you're a defensive driver, right? You're a defensive driver, aren't you? You, you wouldn't have made it here. Yeah. Do you drive? Okay, okay, only a tricycle. But I bet you you drive it defensively, right? <laughs> Second thing, mishandling hostility. Now, up to this point, every time the people blew up at Moses, which were numerous times, you know, and they even threatened to stone him, all he ever does is he goes and he falls on his face before God, which he did this time too, but then he comes back and he's just very gentle, very humble. In fact, God himself says of Moses, he was the most humble man to ever live on the earth. But we see something different this time. This time, he blows his stack, man. He says, you bunch of rebels, and he whacks the rock twice. He says, what do I got to do? I got to give you water, you bunch of wine and babies and others. I got to give you water out of this rock, you know. So we're saying like, whoa, dude, who are you? You're not the guy we saw the first part of the 40-year journey. Who are you? Here's what I think. I mean, it's pretty obvious he mishandled hostility. Uh, responding to hostility with hostility, how many know How many know that's only asking for more hostility? How many know, right? It's just going to escalate. It's just going to get ugly. And then you turn ugly. You have let the hostility make you ugly. It has controlled you. So he mishandled it in the immediate, but I have a theory. I don't think Moses ever knew how to handle hostility all through his life. Remember, he's a guy that lived 40 years, you know, as a shepherd. He, he didn't even want this job to lead the people. He was a quiet man, a, a humble man. He was not comfortable speaking. He was not comfortable leading. And these people just kept criticizing him, criticizing him, criticizing him. I theorize that Moses may not have known how to process that kind of personal attack. And he probably just squashed it down. I can't say for sure. But I think we'll all understand the danger of this. Let's just say he kept suppressing it, suppressing it, suppressing it. Anybody in here, you've ever had a situation where somebody you work with or somebody in your house or just somebody in your neighborhood, sometime in your life, somebody just kept getting on you, getting on you, getting on you, getting on you, but you kept pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, and then all of a sudden, you didn't even know it was coming. You were like a stinking volcano, man. Kaboom! You went off, and you did you said some things. You might have even did some things, you know. And, um, and they're looking like stunned. How, how many have ever done it before? How many have ever done it Mount Vesuvius blowing your volcanic temper. Yeah. Often, often that's because we have mishandled hostility. There, there, there's a way to process that kind of attack with God so that it doesn't, it, it's not taken so personally. God will help you to help you and I to take it more objectively and it, it doesn't build up, build up, build up to the point that there's nowhere left except for it to explode. I think, I think Moses might have had a hard time 
understanding how to handle hostility. Number three, misunderstanding privilege. Remember what Jesus said? He said, to whom much is given, much is, finish it, required. To whom much is given, much is required. We understand that. That's the way it is in everyday life. If I'm going to give you a bunch of privileges, I'm going to require a whole lot of you. Moses was extraordinarily privileged. He spoke to God face to face, not once, numerous times over 40 years. Moses was the start of God's new methodology to take God's word from his mind and put it into Moses' hands so that Moses could write it down. Moses, folks, is the start of the Bible. This was the start of God's new methodology to win back the trust of humanity by recording what he's like in written form. Moses was the person through which God was revealing himself to the world and was going to be revealing himself right down to our day. So he had a tremendous privilege. Remember all the miracles that God did through Moses, all these things. But to whom much is given, much is required. And God was pretty clear. He said, Moses, we've been through this before. You guys might remember they were just two months out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 17. Two months out of Egypt, and they had the same problem, no water. The people all started attacking Moses, yelling, screaming, you know, oh, you're, you're a bum, we should kill you, we, you shouldn't have brought us out here. And God tells Moses, he says, go stand on the rock, take your staff. It's in Exodus 17, you can read it sometime on your own. He says, take your staff and strike the rock, and water will come out. And Moses did it, and the water came out, and the people shut up. They got their water. But now here it is about 40 years later and God says to him okay this time go out and does anybody remember what he said speak to the rock and Moses goes out and he takes a staff he doesn't strike it once he strikes it twice but I know what you're thinking you're like give me a break man the dude was faithful for 40 years and God is this touchy that he he's gonna he's gonna banish the man from the promised land because of a little, a little tiny thing, the difference between striking a rock, I mean, the rock, it wasn't hurt by the staff. I mean, what, what's the big deal, right? Hold on to that, because I'm going to explain to you and show you exactly why. But it's connected to misunderstanding his privilege. He was a vehicle through which God was not only revealing himself then, but he was teaching lessons for future generations. You'll see this in a minute. Let's look at one last thing. Misapplying God's word. Now, that's just what we said. Instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it. God gave his word. He said, this is what to do. He, he misapplied it. So why might that be such a big deal? Let's ask that question. Well, the truth is, nobody would know that it was a big deal for about another 1,500 years. God does something in the Bible that puts the stamp on the Bible that it is the one and only supernatural revelation of the one and only true creator of the universe. He embeds in the Bible things that don't make any sense sometimes for 1,500 years. And then they're like, whoa, so that's what that meant. So that's what that meant. And it shows this supernatural element in the Bible. So let me, let me show you where I'm going with this. Here's the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writing to Christ followers living in the city of Corinth. And he's getting them to think back to that generation of Moses' day. Mind you, this is about 1,500 years later. 
He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Remember the cloud led by day and the fire by night, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, the Red Sea, that is, and all ate the same spiritual food. Remember uh, Exodus 16, the manna, that supernatural food that fed the Israelites, three and a half million of them for, for 40 years. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same, what does it say? Spiritual drink. What the heck is that talking about? The water, the supernatural water, Exodus 17, by hitting the rock. Supernatural water, Numbers 20, hitting the rock twice when he should have spoke to it. Think about it now. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from the, what kind of rock? Spiritual rock that did what? Whoa, wait, 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 wait. The rock is here. How can the rock be following them? Look at the rest of the verse. The spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was, what does it say? Christ. Whoa. You mean all that time when God's, when Moses is meeting with God in the tabernacle, it was Jesus? Yes, that's right. You mean, you mean the, the fiery pillar at night was Jesus? Yes, that's right. You mean the cloud by day was Jesus? Yes, that's right. You mean the rock. Remember Jesus said, the one that comes to me from out from out from the inside of them will come the water of life and he said to people one time he says come to me that you may have the water of life symbolizing that that life of god that's meant to live inside our soul that makes us be who we're meant to be and do we're meant to do here it's saying jesus was in the rock symbolically so let's think about this you strike the rock the first time jesus was struck he was smitten. He was crucified once, correct? Once on the cross. He was not crucified twice. Two times, three times. No, he was not. Look at these other verses from the book of Hebrews. He, meaning Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his what? He was smitten. You, you hit the rock once and the water of life comes out. He was putting away sin. And by the way, the term putting away sin, it means that, that his sacrifice was going to leave such an influence. It was going to release such an impression on human beings that, that human beings would come to the conclusion, sin is nuts. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to return to him. I'm going to live the way he designed me. I'm, I'm, I'm through with sin. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus was meant to accomplish in us. It goes on. Hebrews 10, verse 10, it says, By his will we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What does it say? How many times? Once for all, for all of us. Verse 14, for by how many offerings? One offering. He has perfected. This is starting to sound a little bit better. He has perfected for how long? All time. Those who are made what? Holy. Ah, that's starting to sound a little bit better. By his one sacrifice, somehow we're perfected. But yet Moses was banished. He didn't get in the promised land. So, so what is this saying? It's saying, first of all, that Moses did not know it, but he was a revelatory agent. He was given great privilege, so he needed to do. He should have known after 40 years, do exactly what God says the way he says to do it. Trust God and do what he says. The image was Christ was struck once for us. He dies upon the cross to prove the sacrificial love for God so that we would open our hearts, receive his mercy and his loving grace for ourselves. 
But now Jesus is risen and we speak to him, we pray, we make requests to him, we don't strike him or re-crucify him in any shape or form. Moses had no, con- no clue what that was about. Let me just give you another little thing where God embeds these things. In the book of Leviticus 23, most of you guys have the book of Leviticus memorized, I know. So you're familiar with Levit- Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, you have these things called the festivals of the Lord. So God gives these festivals to Israel. There's seven of these festivals. And these Israelites, it's really kind of funny. These Israelites performed these festivals, for the most part, pretty faithfully, for 1,500 years. They don't have a clue what these festivals mean. They just know God said do it, so they did it. They, they, they don't, they don't they, they're just, they're clueless. They don't know what it means. Let's think about something else. Then the animal sacrifices, you know, they're, they're told, okay, so like, you know, when you sin, you know, take an innocent lamb, lamb without blemish, you know, slit its throat, let it die up in the tabernacle, and then you, you go your way. And they're doing this. They, they don't have a clue why they're doing it. We're just doing it because God said so. We remember when he had the lamb slain and was on the doorpost when we left, you know, left Egypt initially, the, the Passover night and all that. So they're doing these things 1,500 years. Then Jesus arrives in the flesh. He was in a different form with the Israelites traveling through the wilderness, in the cloud, in the fire, you know, in a presence in the tabernacle. Now he comes and puts on a, a fully human identity. And he goes to the cross and dies. You know when, when he died? On the Passover. So all of a sudden, that that festival of the Lord that was given in Leviticus 23, you can read it on your own sometime, 1,500 years earlier, Jesus makes it make sense. Then there's after that the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's when Jesus was buried. He fulfills that. Then they have the Feast of first fruits, which is on Sunday. That's when Jesus rose from the dead. He fulfills these first three. Then there's 50 days later, there's Pentecost when Jesus sends the Spirit of God to empower his people to take his message to the rest of the world. Four of the seven are fulfilled. They're all, the first three are spring, the one Pentecost is summer, and now there's three left. God's entire plan for humanity was laid out way back when the Israelites first came out of Egypt. The last three are in fall. They're the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets is when Jesus will return. That's yet to be fulfilled. You've heard me, some of you say, Jesus will return during the fall. But Randy, it says nobody knows the day or the hour. I didn't say the day or the hour. I just told you the season because the Bible tells me that's all I'm doing. So my point is that these festivals and things that seemed inconsequential for 1,500 years, they were, they were hiding a message so that our generation and other generations could see that, oh my goodness, this is a supernatural revelation. There's nothing like it on the planet. Moses was handling something holy and he handled it a little bit sloppy and he should have known better. But does his story end like that? He's a blowout and a failure? Well, look at this. This is Jesus, Luke 9. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. As he prayed, his face began to glow until it was a blinding glory streaming from him. His inner divinity he was releasing through his skin. And this blinding energy field, this blinding light is coming forth. His entire body was illuminated with a radiant glory. His brightness became so intense that it made his clothing blinding white like multiple flashes of lightning. Let's go on. All at once, two men appeared. So you got Jesus, you know, blindingly bright. And two two men appear. And how do they appear? 
glorious splendor. The notion is they're glowing too. There's this inner blinding light coming from them as well. Well, who in the world are they? (laughs) Moses, 1,500 years later. He's in very good health. (laughs) Elijah, the second man in Scripture who never died. 800 years earlier, he was taken up alive into heaven. Here he is, very good health. But Moses and Elijah, of all the people that were in heaven, who had died and were in heaven at this point, only two does Jesus converse with. Was Moses a failure? Jesus is conversing with him about his soon sacrifice on the cross. They, Moses and Elijah, spoke with Jesus about his soon departure from this world and the things he was destined to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses, far from being a failure, is elite, elite, an elite success with God. He's given this elite information. Nobody else is being told about this. This is Moses. So what looked like on earth a really uncomfortable finish was not what it looked like. It was much better. Listen, this is going somewhere. It'll be helpful for you. Let me share a couple more verses and we'll get ready to land the plane. New Testament book, Romans 8.29, Paul writing. He says, God knew from the beginning who would put their trust in him. God has something called foreknowledge. He knows in advance who will and who will not return to him in trust. It says, God knew from the beginning who would put their trust in him, so he chose them. Once you put your trust in Christ, you're called God's chosen. You're part of his chosen forever family. So he chose them and made them to be like who? Here we go. We're here. There's this thing of dest- journey to destiny again to become a Christ-like version of herself. Christ was first, and all those who belong to God are his brothers, a forever family transformed to the image of Christ. This is God's purpose for those that trust in Christ. Listen to this. And Paul writing again to the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I pray with great faith for you. Why, Paul, why? Because I'm fully convinced that the one who began this glorious work where in you will faithfully do what continue the process of what oh maturing you we've read that before in ephesians maturing means becoming fully like christ he'll continue he'll faithfully continue this process of maturing you and will put his his finishing touches to it until the unveiling of our lord jesus christ that's talking about the second coming of jesus So it's saying that once God starts his work in us, once he sees that we trust him, once we say, I don't really care whoever you follow, whoever you want to follow, I'm putting my trust in Jesus, the creator of the universe who sacrificed himself on the cross to demonstrate his love for me. I'm trusting him. I'm following him. It says the millisecond that I do that, God then starts this process and God himself will not not let the process fail He will keep it going until you and I are completely transformed to wear the beauty of Christ. That's called grace. We don't deserve that. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't care about developing in this life? Well, of course it doesn't mean that because we're told in Scripture, like Paul said, he was pursuing it with all his might 27 years into it. One more. Hebrews 12, 22, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled, your name written in heaven, 
enrolled in heaven to God, the judge of all, and to, I love this part, to the spirits of what kind of ones? Righteous ones made what? Perfect. Righteous ones, but then something happens and they're made perfect. The scripture says in Genesis 15, 6, that when Abraham trusted God, it said God counted him as righteous. It says all through the New Testament, when we put our trust in Christ and become his follower, God counts us as righteous, even though we're not yet righteous. But God's going to start working on us, and he's going to work in us, and he's going to complete the task until we wear the very beauty of Christ himself. Moses, so I want you to think about something. Moses ended as a failure. But 1,500 years later, he was there talking to Jesus. Nobody else was. He was, him and Elijah. He was obviously very perfect at that point. I got thinking about this some. Anybody know the other man in Scripture that never died? Anybody know his name? Enoch. You can read about him in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 4 and 5. It says Enoch lived 365 years, and the Lord just took him. He never died. Well, I got thinking about this some. You know, I've been a Christian since I was 23, I'm substantially older now, and I, so I've been following Jesus for a good number of years, but I got to tell you, I, I'm, you know, I've made some progress, but I haven't made as much as I wanted to. I haven't made as much as I hoped to. I haven't made as much progress as I'm still going to try to. But then I got thinking, give me 365 years. <laughs> give me three, I mean, I have made some progress. Give me 365 years. I think I could make it. <laughs> now, we're not saved on the basis of our works and our efforts. Once we trust Christ, we are his for time and eternity. That's the good news, the really, really good news. Once we put our trust in Christ and become his follower, he'll never leave us, never forsake us. He'll work in us. He'll complete the work that he starts. We will wear the very beauty of Jesus Christ. That is your destiny. Yes, we should pursue it in this life. And we shouldn't be ashamed. It's not easy to say this, but we shouldn't be ashamed, or at least we shouldn't be downtrodden or defeated by the failures along the way. Anybody here know what, what wabi-sabi is? It's really fun to say. When, when it, we try it. it. It just kind of is fun. Wabi-sabi. Yeah. Now, you're, you're talking Japanese now, man. You're, you're talking some Japanese. Wabi-sabi. <laughs> here it is. Wabi, the first part of wabi-sabi, uh, describing the more positive aspects of living alone in nature, a quiet, rustic simplicity. Sabi, on the other hand, begin to find beauty in old age, in a withered character, focusing instead on the serenity that can come with time when the, or excuse me, when inevitable wear becomes a patina and scars become signs of experiences. When a white pottery bowl breaks, for example, one might glue it back together with white lacquer to disguise the breaks, making it look as new and as complete as possible. That's what we do in America. We want to glue that vase back together so that you can't tell it was ever broken. But in the East, the bowl might be glued back together with lacquer sprinkled with gold to highlight, to highlight the brokenness, to highlight the cracks and imperfections. Japanese culture sees the aesthetic value of what? Imperfection. That failure of Moses, here's what I think. I think that that caused him to have a trust in Christ so intense for 
ever he will be that intense in his trust for Christ. It will be like gorilla glue, his soul in union with Christ forever. That failure. Some of us, we've got some failures in our life. We're still alive. We still feel the pain of them, but, but they've changed us, and they've made us trust Christ. They've made us determined to live God's way instead of our own stupid ways, and we're going to carry that into eternity, and it's, it's going to be beautiful. They're not going to be painful memories. People think everything's going to be raised from your mind. No, it's not going to be raised from your mind. We're going to remember things, but they are not going to cause us pain. They're going to cause us to just be awed at the grace, the mercy, the love, the patience of God. And our trust for him will be just like gorilla glue for eternity. Not only that, our failures will work to immunize us from the temptation to ever sin again. You're going to have free will in eternity. You're not going to be some kind of robot that can't sin. You won't sin again, but it won't be that you can't sin. It will be that you won't sin. I won't sin because we've had it with sin, man. We know what it brings. We've experienced it in this life. Our failures, our failures can be powerful inoculations to immunize, immunize us eternally from sin. So, what does this mean for us? First of all, good news to you. Good news for you that are following Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, 27, 28, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they'll never perish, they'll never be destroyed. Nobody can take them from me. So you've got to answer the question. I've got to answer the question. Forget all the religious stuff you've ever heard in your life and answer this one question. Who are you following? Because everybody's following somebody. Uh, I followed myself the first 23 years of my life. Who are you following? Have you put your trust in Christ and because you actually trust him, you are now following him. What do you mean following him, Randy? Meaning you are going to his word to learn his will to shape your life to live the way he designed you and I to live. Because you trust him, you want to know his will and do his will. You are following him. He says to those that trust him and follow him, we receive eternal life. We will be perfected. Even our failures will be turned to redemptive gold for eternity. They need not be something that torments us and creates fear and guilt and shame in us. But it's all contingent upon who are you really following. If you're following Jesus, your destiny to become like him is certain it's just as certain as though it already happened so do not be discouraged about the failures along the way god will lovingly redeem these he will fill them with purposes that you can hardly begin to imagine let's pray we thank you our god that beyond anything we can ask or think so is your goodness so is your mercy so is your patience uh, help us this morning to just embrace fully this calling this destiny to become a christ-like version of ourselves, but also to embrace the fullness of your mercy that we as fallible human beings ever need help us not to be tormented and tortured and discouraged by failure but rather to be stirred to thank you even more enthusiastically for your patience and your mercy it's in christ's name i pray